This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mock market. Well, Bahari Ross, thanks very much for uh, for taking time and, and coming on Masters of the Market. Really appreciate you uh, joining the show. Thanks very much, Chris. I'm happy to be here. And uh, now, trained originally as an actuary, but ended up at, at Magellan. Do you ever think how life might have been different if you had have gone down the actuarial path? Uh, I do, and I'm pleased I didn't have to say. <laughs> so, you know, I always wanted to do something with numbers, but I wasn't just a maths person, you know, back at school and, and at university. So I really wanted to combine maths with thinking about life, I suppose. And I really feel, you know, investing proved to be this wonderful combination of the two where you think about the world around you, you know, everything you see, you do, you consume and interact with is ultimately relevant in some way to how, you know, the prospects of businesses uh, around the world and combining that with, you know, some quali- quantitative skills has actually proven to be, you know, a really nice, a nice uh, balance for me uh, and my skill set. So I do, I am glad that I didn't uh, end up working as an actuary, I have to say. <laughs> And so as head of research at Magellan and also portfolio manager, you mentioned your, your grounding in, in numbers there. How do you go about uh, researching and, and valuing stocks today where some of the tradi- traditional valuation methods that you would have grown up with uh, may not seem as relevant today as perhaps they were when you started working in the industry? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I think, you know, valuation does have to always evolve uh, over time and, you know, understanding what the market is potentially doing in valuing a company is just as important as how you are going to do it because you're potentially taking a contrarian view uh, to how the market is, is, is looking at something. And what I would say is traditionally, you know, at Magellan, we're sort of using in many ways similar methods to what we always used, but you have to take, again, what's happening in the world around you into account. So we use, you know, traditional DCF where we're looking at very long-term prospects um, of a company, and we also look at what we call our total shareholder return expectation, which is what are the earnings going to be like over three to five years, what multiple will the market put on that, um, and therefore what is the business worth today, you know, keeping that in, taking that into account. And, of course, a big swing factor there, and that this is you know, affected all companies, is the level of interest rates mm. around that. You know, there's been a, any long-term chart just has a steady trajectory are lower and lower and lower. And there's lots of reasons for that to be, you know, very valid and true, you know, demographics and tech-based deflation uh, and the sheer amount of debt in the world, you know, that damper on, on rates as well. And all else equal, if you think of, you know, a company that's growing, you know, 4% per annum, you know, it's linked to economic growth and all else equal, if rates are lower and that 4% remains intact, that business is worth more. You know, mm. what would have been worth 15 times is worth 20 times or 25 times, depending on the level of rates. But the thing that I always caution people against when it comes to that is, you know, not all companies are, are created equal here. You know, what is the implication of lower rates for companies? Yeah. Really, the implication of a lower, lower rate environment is lower growth as well. Why are rates so low? It's because growth is lower. You know, inflation is lower or real growth is lower as well. And so you might say, okay, this company previously was going to be growing at 4% forever, but it's important to question, is it still going to be growing at 4%? Is it linked to that economic activity? And is the growth actually permanently shifted down as well for that business? So those companies aren't actually worth any more than they were before. Mm. So while markets have lifted all boats in many in many cases, that's not necessarily justified across the board from my perspective. Some companies, absolutely, there's a structural growth tailwind sitting behind them and maybe that 10% shifted to 9% or the 10% is completely intact. And that business, hand on heart, genuinely is worth more because that cash flow profile hasn't changed. And so you've really seen that play out in a 
pretty significant way, you know, in the staples and the utility space for the last, you know, really since 2016, you know, when the Fed first had their, you know, reared up the, the front of the horse saying, oh, hang on a minute, maybe we won't take rates up as much as we thought we would. And you've also seen it for those structural, really high structural growth businesses. But for us, it's not just about, you know, is that multiple justified, but is the, are those cash flows predictable and reliable? You know, and we can talk about this, you know, during this chat, but, you know, with that actuarial background, you know, I like to think about, you know, we're predicting the future here. We've got a crystal ball. And how clear is that crystal ball on this business? You know, what is the distribution curve, to use the actuarial term, look like on this stock? Is it a narrow distribution curve? You can, it's highly linked to economic growth or it's highly linked to that particular tailwind. And you can really predict what this business is going to look like in three years and four years and five years and beyond. Or the other extreme is, is this a straight line distribution curve, i.e. that outcome is likely or that outcome is just as likely, which means you actually have no idea what the business is worth at all. So I would say the thing that hasn't changed is, you know, that discipline around valuation is just as important as it always has been. But understanding the dynamics, you know, the components that go into that valuation, the growth, the market risk premium, which, you know, is impossible to, to back solve for, as well as a level of rates, you know, you sort of understanding all those components are really important in working out which are the stocks that are overvalued and which ones actually look, you know, cheap, despite what the overall level of the market might be. You mentioned there that the central banks effectively rising all boats to some level. As an intellectual exercise, have you ever changed the denominator of shares or, or asset classes in terms of Certainly, Raupol has been vocal on this, changing the denominator of the G4 balance sheets, which have been growing at 15% per annum since 2008. Have you done the intellectual exercise of changing the denominator from USD or AUD to central bank balance sheets to see which assets are really going up in value as a percentage of the monetary base versus which are just going up in nominal value because currency is being debased? Well, I think that's really interesting. Look, I've never done the actual maths on that that particular exercise, but it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating idea. So the only two asset classes that have gone up that have outperformed, entire classes, I mean, Tesla's outperformed, but NASDAQ and, and Bitcoin are the only two that have outperformed central bank, the GeForce central bank balance sheet growth, which um, when you start looking at everything through that framework, um, you start to, to, it's intellectually offensive at some level because when you sit around all day trying to pick stocks, um, you start to get a feel for how much tailwind, I guess, there, there is in the system from the, the central bank stimulus being pumped in. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And, that, and that's the thing. It's, it's really, you know, hopefully cutting through some of the noise around markets because markets always have noise. Yeah. And, you know, as Buffett famously says, you know, in the short term, it's a, it's a voting machine. The long term, it's a weighing machine. So what is this business really worth over a long period of time? You know, happily at Magellan, we're not trying to own the market. Yeah. I'm sort of grateful for that each and every day because we just have to pick, you know, the 25 companies when it comes to the global portfolios or the 75 companies in the core portfolios that we believe are the best place to be right now um, and not having to necessarily worry about the valuation of 2,000 stocks yeah. across the broader market. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, business in there which we just don't look at, you know, highly cyclical companies, yeah. you know, some of those story, you know, non-profitable story type companies um, that probably don't have sustainable advantages from our point of view. You know, they're just off the table. And so talk me through your framework. I know you've got sort of four points when looking at a business that are your first points of call when you're ranking the quality of your company. Can you talk us through what, what that looks like, that framework? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to our process, that first step really is what are the businesses that deserve to be in the Magellan investment universe? You know, which are the companies that meet our quality criteria? And only companies that are on that list are ultimately eligible for investment. So there's a whole bunch of companies that just never make it, um, you know, from an industry point of view, being very commodity exposed or, you know, for ESG reasons, be it tobacco or, um, you know, to some defence contractors and things like that, that don't make it either. But beyond that, we're applying our quality hurdles, which is a, you know, it's a qualitative view um, based on a few different criteria. And we have an investment committee you know, all the senior people um, in the Magellan investment team, you know, participate in and then we'll debate these scores as well. You know, the first and most important one is economic moat. 
uh, economic moat is literally what is the protection around this business? The business is the castle. You know, what is the width and depth of that moat? You know, what are the protections, the economic protections around this business? Does it have um, economies of scale? You know, it's a classic one. Can they deliver that product or service to their customer cheaper than everyone else can? You know, and a Costco or someone's a wonderful example of that. Um, you know, Amazon's a good example of that. Mm. You know, the scale of that business. And it's interesting if you think about disruption, which is another component we look at, because, you know, there's no gap left for the competitor to come in and offer that good or service cheaper than mm. what. Uh, Costco also takes a very thin margin. You pay your membership fee, but then you pay very little margin as a customer on the products you buy. That's really difficult to disrupt. You have to have scale in order to do that. Um, then you might have, um, you know, a brand, you know, like, like a Louis Vuitton, uh, like a Gucci that has incredible pricing power attached to it and has that longevity of desire. You know, alcohol companies often have that as well, uh, where those products you know, have been consumed and have been popular, you know, for 100 years and continue to be so because it sort of often goes hand in hand with economies of scale because you've grown this amazing juggernaut of a brand and therefore you can outspend everyone else, you know, on marketing it and things as well. Um, you might have, you know, one of my favourites is your network effects. Mm. Imagine where the two sides of a market reinforce each other. You know, a Visa card is a great example of that where, you know, the more and more card holders you have, then the more and more businesses want to accept the Visa card. And then the more and more Visa cards that are accepted, the more willing you are to have one. So those two sides reinforce each other and they strengthen each other. And I think it's interesting in the case of Visa, especially because it was established in an analogue world, you know, mm. every person was brought on over the course of time to the tune of, you know, $11 trillion in um, transactions now and that is actually incredibly to, to disrupt in some ways digital networks are almost easier to disrupt than the original analog ones because you, everyone flo floods to snapchat or everyone floods over to instagram stories or whatever that happens to be you know the adoption of digital technology is a lot faster and can move a lot faster um, so of course there's these these different criteria that you might look at you know what are the advantages of this business Let's identify what those advantages are and talk about them. You know, analysts write, you know, very detailed reports that go into this and identifying that advantage. You know, that's, that's really important. And then disruption is really around the trend of that moat. You know, where is that business going, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years into the future? Will this business be stronger over that time period or does it face threats? And I think it's sort of an obvious thing to say because, of course, all businesses face threats all the time. Mm. Um, and, again, their resilience to those sometimes is a function of how well they react to it. You know, technology is a classic, as I said. They, the whole point of technology is something new comes along all the time and you have to adapt to that and throw, you know, the, the cash flow that your business generates around, you know, staying ahead of that. You know, and I think that's relevant in healthcare as well where there's so much new technology um, around immuno-oncology, um, even around asthma or around things like MS um, or robotic surgery. All those things are examples of disruption. Uh, and technology is often the, the, the gold standard of what drives disruption. But it can also be things like, you know, changes in consumer behaviour. You know, one of the big things we've really seen, it's actually accelerated, I would say, in COVID is uh, or maybe it's a bit binomial, you either you are or you aren't, and that's caring about your health and wellness. That's been a, a huge, um, you know, headwind for some companies, you know, like a Kellogg um, in the consumer space, but it's been a tailwind for companies that have, you know, plant-based foods in their, in their portfolios. Um, it's been a headwind for Coca-Cola because mm. of sugar. But have, how do they adapt to that? You know, one of the really interesting things about Coca-Cola is that they've still grown their revenues because now they just sell 200 mil cans at the same price they used to sell 600 mil bottles. And people go, okay, that's a, that's a treat. No, I'll, mm. I'll have that. Um, and it's got no sugar now anyway. So disruption can happen in lots of different ways. And the trend of how that business is going to evolve over time is, is another pillar of what we look at. Uh, we also look at business risk. 
And that's really around that shape of that distribution curve. You know, how predictable is this business? You know, what are the key risks that this company faces? Is it economic? Is it um, related to, you know, competitive tensions? And so what are the some in the current climate is ESG, is that sort of a potential risk that you just, you couldn't look at currently, given what the, the market looks like? Absolutely is, is one of those uh, things that we're looking at within that business risk. You know, and people sort of go, ESG is this separate thing, but it's actually not. You know, if you think of, you know, the impact of data privacy mm. on Facebook, data privacy is a social issue, it's a social risk, but it's also a key risk for Facebook and for Google. And what you've seen play out for those companies is Facebook has had to invest incremental billions and, you know, take their margins down, ultimately from the 40% range to the 30% range, in order to fulfil, you know, that risk, you know, in order to, um, you know, put more money into monitoring their platform, in order to pay fines, in order to, um, you know, invest in AI uh, that will help them. And, of course, people, has, you know, there's been a huge uptake, upswing in the number of people they've employed to do it as well. That's, a, that's an ESG risk that has played out in a true sense for that business. But I would say in many ways... The risk has made the business stronger because the amount of money that is required to monitor the platform at an appropriate standard, you know, to take um, terrorism content off, to take, you know, things that shouldn't be on there off. You know, in Germany, for example, specifically, you must take, you know, Nazi-type content off. And they've had to build the technology in order to do that. As you can imagine, at a rapid clip, you know, they, 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 they publish stats where you know, it's literally millions and billions of different things that they are removing from their platform each and every day uh, and over the course of weeks and months. And that creates an economy of scale because it's hard for another player mm. to actually replicate what they do just from a capital and scale point of view. So it's a risk. They're managing it. It has been negative for their economics for a period of time, but it also strengthens the business. But there's a nuance in the way um, that we might look at that and you'd think of, you know, an ESG risk around the environment uh, for a company like Nestle or a Unilever and what you're seeing is customers care about this, you know, changes in consumer behaviour actually do impact future outcomes. It's a form of disruption from my point of view. So you've got, you know, Smarties is going to have all um, recyclable packaging, you know, for the first time and that's been rolled out. You've got investment in plant-based substitutes. You've got investment in, you know, meat-based substitutes, et cetera, as well. And you've had investment in, you know, low-sugar products. And unfortunately, some companies are a little bit dead in the water and a little bit stuck because what they happen to produce is sugar, sugary cereals. Mm. But again, it's important to distinguish there which are the companies that are truly vulnerable and which are the ones that are actually going to be okay. And one of the, you know, not so much a shortcut, but... Where people are really doing health and wellness is in their main meals and less so in their snacks, you know, in their sort of social occasions. So they're still, you know, drinking alcohol. They may be drinking less, but they're drinking better um, and more expensive, essentially. And their main meals have shifted to being healthier. But then the snacks category and the coffee category and the high-end chocolate category you know, have continued to grow unabated because people still, you know, want a bit of a treat. And so it's that consumer, the subtleties of those consumer behaviour changes that can really influence, you know, outcomes for companies over time. Um, one of the things we talked about is, you know, what has e-commerce done to a lot of those companies as well? It's, it's really levelled the playing field. You know, any, um, anyone can start up a brand. You know, anyone can sell it on social media and employ like an influencer to, to sell it. And has that genuinely reduced the economic mode of these companies or does scale still matter? And again, it, it really depends on the category and the type of business this company is in to make, to make that judgment. So it's a qualitative assessment we're doing there. In terms of that ESG thematic, do you, do you think from an investor's point of view, it's important that everyone's somewhere on the continuum of, you know, the world's going to end in two years because human beings are bad to ESGs are, are wrought and a way for the EU to commit to a fiscal spending program, is it important to note that 
it doesn't really matter what your personal bias is, is that it is coming and to not invest just on where you may sit in that philosophical continuum, but more just to recognise that whether you're into it or not, it's coming and it is going to shape the world and how capital is allocated for the next 10, 20 years. And I think that that's a really astute comment. You're quite right that ESG can be so fraught for exactly that reason because people do put their personal opinion um, overlay and it is, I suppose it is appealing to people to be able to say, well, I'm investing in line with my moral compass, but my moral compass might be different to yours to person number three. And so, you know, what we try and really bring it back to is how does ESG risk, because it's a risk ultimately for these businesses, impact how capital will be deployed and it'll, how does it impact the cash flows of this business? How is it going to change what these business is worth over time? You know, is it through, you know, data privacy related fines? Is it because taxation in the alcohol space? Um, and of course, there is an element of with ESG, you know, these things must be excluded, you know, from an ESG perspective, a lot of, um, and of course, we would do a bespoke mandate if there was a religious um, organisation that wanted to, you know, not have alcohol stocks or not have certain type of business in there. Um, Provided they had a pretty big checkbook, I assume. <laughs> I suppose that's relevant as well. But you're right, like this is something, you know, decarbonisation is another element here in ESG that companies can't hide from it. Yeah. And it is coming. It is um, a genuine risk for these companies. We try and identify not just, you know, ticking the box, or, you know, oh, yes, there's environment risk or there's social risk. It's going, what is the impact of this risk on this business? What is the materiality of this risk? You know, it might be um, and a good example is something like a palm oil, you know, which is, you know, orangutan forests are being destroyed because of palm oil over the course of time, you know, consumers and governments alike are going to expect substitution away from that. And palm oil is actually this amazing product that enables you to make silky shampoo and Nutella and all these different things. Um, They're going to have to find an alternative and that's going to cost money Mm. and resources to do. So it's sort of, again, trying to bring it back to the economics of these businesses rather than just applying you know, a, a mor- you know, a morality sort of grey zone over the... And that way we're also applying it consistently as well. So it's yeah. not, I personally happen to, you know, like alcohol companies or I personally happen to like, um, you know, a Facebook type thing because, of course, everyone's going to have a different view. And so we take it back to those fundamentals, the business, business fundamentals, because, again, the objective here is to still achieve investment returns. Uh, and that's, you know, that's our process and it's integrated with our risk framework. The other thing I wanted to come back to there, which you touched on, and just to, I don't want to repeat what you said, but just to give myself some clarity on it, is you spoke about the power of um, scale that some businesses have. Um, but I think you also sort of touched on, you know, if you look at Blockbuster Video, you know, they had scale and that was an economic advantage. There was a Blockbuster in every neighborhood and if you were a local video shop it was hard to really compete with that scale but once they got disrupted um that scale became a real vulnerability and something that was at once a strength all of a sudden becomes the noose around their neck and they can't compete with the company that disrupted them are they some of the the changes and the nuance that that you're sort of looking out for that's right i mean having a high fixed cost base you know blockbuster example of you know, retail is expensive to run. Mm. You've got to, and that's why digital can, could disrupt it, right? Because if you've got a digital product, you know, like Netflix, you don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to, you know, you do have to manufacture a TV show, obviously, and, you know, you've got to employ actors and everything. Um, but you don't have to ship it around the world. You don't have to create a, um, distribution centres. You don't have to create a store network. You don't have to employ all these people to work in the store and run the electricity and everything. And unfortunately, what happens with those very high fixed cost businesses, and you've seen it a lot in retail, you know, Blockbuster is a good example, is the sales actually don't have to fall all that much for the economics to start to unravel. So you're sort of in a situation where, you know, sales fall 5% and profit falls 25% because you can't change your cost fast enough um, for how fast your revenues are coming down. And that's actually real risk, you know, for those traditional businesses that are really high cost driven. And 
absolutely that's one of the nuances and that's why having a genuine advantage is important you know what protected um blockbuster um what didn't protect blockbuster rather um, may well protect sort of a costco because no one can you know there's no gap there for someone to come in and fill mm. uh, this is the thing what is disruption a lot of people talk about well trendy gins for example are disrupting traditional alcohol brands and you might say well are they really because what they're doing is adding a more expensive tier to what's already there they're increasing interest in the category they're generating pricing power in the category and by the way if they're successful the large brands probably going to buy it anyway Mm. and that's not necessarily disruption because the economics of that category and of that business haven't been dismantled by that new entrant i do feel my my uh initiation into lark whiskey though was a complete disruption <laughs> to any other whiskies uh, across the market so I, I may have to take the other side of the view on that <laughs> actually it's interesting because it's come a lot later in uh in the dark spirit side because it's harder to do is it yeah okay sure it and you've got it you know it's a different supply chain yeah uh, on the other hand if someone comes along and the classic example is um the dollar shave club you know when oh, yeah. you raises for a dollar and previously it was you know, you're paying $13 for a packet of new razors um, at Gillette, that was, you know, and that was a premium offering that some people wanted, but it wasn't one that appealed to everybody and that left a gap in the bottom end. And that's sort of what I often talk about with something, you know, like an Amazon or like a Facebook or a Microsoft. There's no gap there. You know, you can use Facebook for free already. Uh, Microsoft is adaptable to whatever your needs happen to be and cloud really makes that happen uh, in a scale way as well. So, of course, you know, there's always a chance that there's other disruptive, you know, enterprises that come along, but where's the gap for that for that disruption? Mm. Place? And that's sort of part of the nuance as well. Um, and then the last criteria that we use is reinvestment potential. It's probably one of my favourite criteria because is what is the, the compounding um, capacity of this company, you know, over the course of time, you know, compounding is a wonderful thing, you know, the power of that um, each and every year over the course of 10 and 20 years is a wealth building model. And that's if you people who read Warren Buffett's books, that's really where they got smacked with Amazon, isn't it? Because yeah. for all intents and purposes, it barely had a PE, yet it was just pumping <laughs> all its free cash flow back into its back into its business and increasing that economic moat year after year. Absolutely. And what a wonderful example of reinvestment potential. Yeah. All the money that they generated, they ploughed back in. They didn't raise capital no. from markets each and every year. It was all the money that was being generated by the business model itself ploughed back in. And, of course, when they eventually did split out, you know, AWS from the retail, you saw how profitable AWS was and that, you know, therefore the, the firepower they had, you know, to really win in retail as well and just a huge addressable market where that ability to keep reinvesting year after year was enormous well and still is still and, is now isn't it and still is i mean if you think about it they only really dominate in the us so mm-hmm. far but amazon's market share of us retailing is five percent they've got about 50 percent share of e-commerce which is you know pre pre-covid was about 10 percent. obviously now it's gone up uh thanks to necessity you know and everyone's grandmothers have tried online shopping for the first time so it's really it's really brought that forward and Amazon is, you know, in the prime position, not to, <laughs> pun intended, to, to take advantage of that. Um, but that's a classic reinvestment potential business. And it's, it's not just what is the growth of the business, but can you put more capital into the business to generate more growth? And, the, the, you know, there's many an example of a company, you know, Visa Card, um, where you actually don't need to put a lot of capital in. Mm to generate the growth and that's wonderful that's more valuable than a company where you've got to reinvest reinvest 100 of your capital to get the same growth so you're not looking at just the growth but also what's the capital intensity of that growth you know having an opportunity to invest capital is wonderful as well um, and it's valuable over time and it's definitely better than having no opportunities because then you're better off just handing the money back to shareholders um, through dividends and you know that's valuable as well but it's not as valuable as a business that can really compound for you over time and talk me through Magellan you've spoken a lot about disruption and you guys are renowned for for investing in highly disruptive companies and doing it really well 
that's not always associated with huge funds, particularly in Australia, where often large funds are, are maybe associated with more traditional style businesses. How do you marry, how do you marry up the cultural um, side of things at Magellan? What is it about the culture there that enables you to, to embrace disruption and, and innovation so well? Oh, look, I think it's the thirst for learning. Uh, we've got, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily by design, but we've always employed very intelligent, curious people and with the diverse backgrounds as well. I think everyone, everyone can have their own unique perspective. And what I would say is our approach is really about being as thorough as possible. Um, we call it inch wide and mile deep. Uh, we want to be experts in the stocks we cover. Each of our analysts, you know, covers a minimal number of stocks. I know back in the day when I worked in the Aussie market, you know, pre-Magellan, you know, you are sort of spread more thin, you know, you're trying to cover 15 plus stocks. You know, our analysts are covering less than 10 always, yeah. um, five to eight often. And they have genuine expertise, you know, in the businesses that, that they look at. And the other thing that's, you know, maybe this comes from my actuarial background as well, but that distribution curve really matters. You know, you've got a forecast and you've got a model that's telling you that this business is going to be great and it's really cheap, but what about the rest of the distribution curve? All of those things have a probability attached to them as well. So we spend probably just as much time, if not more time, on where we might be wrong as well as where we are going to be right. And therefore, what are the holes in the investment thesis? What are, the, what are those disruptive forces? What are the risks that could make this business unravel? And we explicitly, you know, through our analyst team, you know, identify what those are ahead of time and try and understand them and understand how predictable they might be as well. So it's that culture of always questioning um, what we know and being willing to change our minds on businesses. Um, how much does price action help you with that? What if there's a, a strong consensus view in the market and the price action is doing something wildly different in you? I mean, it's, it's a broad generalised <laughs> question, but do you generally intuitively look to back the price action or do you back consensus? No, look, I think what we want to do is understand why that's happening. Yeah. Anytime price action is happening that's non-consensus, it's something to explore. It could be consensus could be one thing, the price action is doing the complete opposite on the upside. Is that sort of how you look at it? I think it's also, you know, what is our conviction around that business quality as well? It comes into it. You know, is this is this going to be, I suppose, a temporary speed hump mm. you know, or a mere flesh wound that this business, because of its quality, will ultimately brush off and come through? Or is this actually more than that? Is this something that's existential to this company that we just hadn't anticipated prior? Does this change our view on quality? We often go back to, is this business as high quality as we thought it was? Is the moat as strong as we thought it was? Um, If it is, obviously that requires a lot of judgment, you know, then we're probably likely to buy more of that business. Um, But sometimes... Uh, there has been examples in the past where something's happened and you thought, hang on, this is actually changing the future for this company and we should we should shy away. Um, so it's it really does depend on the company. But the price action, you know, the market is telling you something. Mm. You know, there's there's many a stock that looks really, really cheap, you know. There's many an investor that will go down that value route of this has got a, a wonderfully high dividend yield or a wonderfully high free cash flow yield. But I always say, what is the market telling you about this stock? What are the warts on this company? And are they warts that, you know, prevent them you from ever finding your Prince Charming? Or, <laughs> or are they, you know, are they going to um, get through it? You know, and the market's always giving you information. Sometimes that information is just pure noise. Hmm. And, you know, the voting machine element of, you know, Tesla's going to sell every car to everybody <laughs> all over the world. Um, and there's going to be no competition in electric cars or, you know, that or renewables. And I think there's that type of noise and there's equally something where, you know, maybe something has shifted. And you've seen a few examples of it. I'll give an example of, um, you know, Target, I think it was 2014 or 2013, where, you know, they had this profit warning that their earnings weren't going to come down by a billion dollars at the time. It was very significant. It was this classic negative 5% sales negative 25% uh, profit impact. And at the time, you know, you have to do a lot of soul searching. Of, is this a sign 
of a broader headwind that retail is facing. You know, how will this business compete in an Amazon world where, you know, and that's the thing that Amazon keeps doing because they keep ploughing uh, capital, is they're changing the cost to play. You know, if you want to play this mm. game in this market servicing this customer, then this is the new expectation of what you have to deliver. Bezos's line of your margin is my opportunity just has a bit of a psycho feel to it, doesn't it, if you're competing yeah, well, against I like, it? I don't usually use that line because it does sound a bit psycho. <laughs> essentially, how are these guys going to compete? Do they have the cash flow to compete? Yeah. The balance sheet to compete? And can they, even if they try? Uh, and so sometimes those sort of price reactions are telling you something. Sometimes it could just be, and you're sort of starting to see it in a few cases now with this latest result season, um, you know, the good news is sold off because... Mm in the price now mm. sometimes genuinely the market's just saying that stock's expensive now you know hopefully we're not in it that time and you mentioned quality stocks before and i've spoken to the people at magellan they say there's one portfolio you're in charge of which you refuse to relinquish any control over and that's the the luxury market okay is, is yeah. that for investment purposes or are there some some <laughs> purchases involved in researching that that mean it's uh it's more amenable to, to stay in control of that. Well, look, well, as I did say, we do try and be experts uh, <laughs> in the stocks that we cover. Uh, and that's, you know, that's part of our culture as well, that, you know, everybody covers stocks, uh, no matter what your title is or your position or whether you are running a portfolio. Uh, so everybody has sector expertise um, and everyone continues to cover stocks, which I think it creates, you know, it just creates a flatter culture. Um, if I'm as head of research, you know, asking the analyst team to do something, I'm also doing that thing, you know, for the stocks that I cover. And what's happening in the luxury market? What's your view? Uh, so, you know, for luxury, it's it's been a fascinating ride in the last couple of years, you know, with this COVID outcome. You know, we're very much riding high uh, pre-COVID. Um, you know, the Chinese consumer has been so instrumental um, to growth in that sector. You know, 20 years ago, the Chinese consumer was 1% of the luxury market worldwide. Now the Chinese consumer is upwards of 35%. Wow. So that's a, you know, that's a 30% plus, you know, compound growth rate. Um, and then of course you sort of had the stalwart shoppers, you know, in developed markets as well. And, you know, this is ultimately still a niche industry as, as large as the companies that within it are. Um, it's not for everyone. And you do have, you know, this sort of half the consumers which are just outright wealthy and will continue to buy the products, you know, regardless of what economic cycles are doing. But you do also have the 50% that's, you know, economically sensitive, let's say. Um, so you've seen, though, in the last year, you've seen a, you know, a remarkable shape, really, because what you saw in the last year was that potentially economies were heavily impacted, you know, service economy, restaurant sector, heavily, heavily impacted by COVID. But meanwhile, you had all the white collar workers going home and doing the same job they always did at home and, and adapting, I guess, to the new environment. And then meanwhile, unable to spend money on holidays and travel and um, things like that. And what you really saw was this, you know, I think it was first um, talked about by the EU, this K-shape in K-shape in the recovery, where you do have this whole, you know, portion of the economy that's been, you know, devastated. You know, if you think of the out of out of home, you know, bar sector and things like that, restaurants in Europe just being decimated. You know, typically you have a lot of people going out of business in that sector as it is, but that's accelerated and it takes a long time for that entrepreneurship to come back. Uh, but meanwhile, home renovations are through the roof. You know, Lowe's, one of the big home uh, home improvement retailer, um, said in their result, full year result in February, that they had seven years worth of refurbishment activity take place in the last year. Wow. Um, so do you look through that? Uh, how do you, how do you, with, a luxury, with the luxury trend, for instance, so people haven't been able to spend on services, they've put it into goods that are actually physical. Do you say once those services are coming back, which is starting to happen overseas, has been happening all along, well, not all along in Australia, but coming back in all parts of Australia now. What's going to happen in terms of those purchases? Do you think there's, there's those things have just been brought forward or do you think we are on a, a secular shift where spending on goods is going to increase again? It's a, it's a really good question because we don't know the answer. Yeah. To, 
Um, but certainly in the case of Lowe's and Home Depot, you know, could it keep going as long as lockdowns stay on and people decide they actually do need a better house? It could carry on for another year or so, but beyond that, you'd expect a normalisation. You know, if work from home is a secular change, it could keep going. Is that fair? If people yeah. all of a sudden don't need to live in major cities, but they need to live or they choose to live in regional areas where you do build a big house instead of a small flat. Right, that's right. That's, you know, what is the, you know, you've seen a huge upswing in, you know, property prices, you know, away from the city, you know, even in up, upstate New York and parts of the US as well. So those guys expect a moderation. They've, you know, they've talked to the market saying they expect a moderation, but certainly it could keep going slightly longer than what people expect because obviously seven years worth, it's not still, it's not the whole pipeline that got mm. done. It's just a very big chunk of the pipeline that got done. Um, and then, you know, in luxury, it's an interesting one because historically, pre-COVID, um, 40% of all luxury spending used to happen when people were travelling overseas. Ah, 40%. Wow. So that includes airports as well. You know, Are they the- selling online now, companies like Louis Vuitton and Gucci? Because they were often not big online sellers, weren't they? Absolutely right. A lot of these companies, and, and I think this is a broader COVID trend, companies have had to come to the party with digital. Um, digital has become uh, part of many people's lives that maybe wasn't before. We've all pivoted to doing Zoom calls. If you think of, you know, 18 months ago, doing a video conference with someone was an absolute nuisance. <laughs> it never worked. Mm. Somebody's audio wasn't working. Somebody wasn't ready. And the world has moved. But now it's like you can't make a phone call all of a sudden. Everyone I, wants to I, Zoom I, all the time. There's nothing wrong with just a, a phone call. Sometimes I don't want to answer that. I'm not, I'm not camera ready. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I agree with that. But, you know, that's been brought forward. You know, Microsoft Teams, you know, cloud-based computing has been brought forward. E-commerce, you know, in the peak of the crisis, e-commerce, you know, for some of these luxury companies was 100% of their sales, where previously they really dug their heels in and thought, no, no, our store experience is the important thing. And mm-hmm. nonetheless, you know, the store experience is still going to be important for companies like that. But do you really, you know, once you've set up your online grocery shopping, maybe going to the supermarket isn't so important to you, you know. And so th- these things have permanently shifted and been brought forward. It's not to say that that would, never would have happened in 10 years and 20 years' time, but it's happened now. You know, there's been a, a, an exogenous force that's that's brought it all forward. And even casualization, I sort of have a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, Nike is one of the most, um, you know, best performers in 2020 as well, thanks to that shift to, gosh, I get, I'm going to need a whole new you know, suite of tracksuit pants for my work at home life. So that was already something that was happening, interestingly enough. People were becoming more casual in their attire. And I've uh, noticed even people going back into the office, they don't get as dressed up as they did pre-COVID, I don't think. Right. I do still, but... Yeah, you're the exception to the rule. That's why you've got the luxury portfolio. So it's, 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 an, it's an interesting one because once you can travel again, go to the restaurants again, you know, you know there's some things that probably aren't repeat you know if you didn't buy a handbag this year you might not buy two next year you know if you didn't get buddy but there's other things sort of if you didn't get married last year you are likely to get married next year um or if you didn't renovate your house last year you might do it next year um so it's it really depends on the sector in terms of what might happen one thing that's really interesting is this pivot in luxury you know overall sales are now up um so for lvmh which is Louis Vuitton, Moe Hennessy, their fashion and leather goods sales in this first quarter just gone were up 37% on 2019. Hmm. So that's that size of that, you know, I want something to spend my money on type dynamic. Does it correlate to equity markets and asset prices as well? Absolutely, it does. And it does depend on on the consumer. So in the US the wealth effect of the share market is very obvious. You tend to see a really high correlation. You know, cognac and champagne sales have gone through the roof in the US, um, as have luxury sales. In China, it tends to be more around property markets or entrepreneurship, you know, IPOs. um, Those types of things tend to be more relevant. Um, And then in Europe, it tends to just be the stalwart wealth. um, So there's a bit of judgment there around, yes, it's, it's actually not surprising that luxury has done so well in the context of markets and in the context of people being at home. And you do need to sort of factor in a bit of a tempering there. Um, and the fact that if people travel again, they potentially have less money 
uh, to allocate to, to this type of spending in the future. Um, but nonetheless, it will continue to be, you know, the enduring appeal is part of the, the moat as well. So there's a lot of little subtleties there in terms of understanding that sector. But, it, but that's an example of a business that businesses that have that structural growth tailwind sitting behind them, you know, that Chinese consumer is still, you know, in its infancy in terms of its, you know, the ability to spend. Um, you know, I say it's sort of 35% plus of, of the luxury sector today. But that affluent class, it's only a small number of people, but that's expected to grow in the next five and 10 years, still at 20% per annum. And it looks like the government's really trying to transform their economy into a consumption economy as opposed to just a, a factory for the world. Is that, is that fair? Right. 100%. It's, you know, I think it's actually part of the Chinese Communist Party's social contract. You know, with yeah. their, you, know you keep us in power, we'll make sure that you have a great life. Um, and, you know, obviously people who are happy in their life are less likely to, um, you know, have issues with the way the government's running things as well. So I think making, you know, creating wealth um, and creating, you know, a high standard of living among the Chinese consumer is, is a key, um, key objective. You know, and one of their objectives, for example, is to have zero unemployment. You know, they want people to be productive, um, and consuming, you know, developing things like Hainan in place of Hong Kong um, as a place to travel to and spend money. Um, you know, the support ultimately of the large e-commerce platforms, you know, like Alibaba, as much as there's been a lot of hoo-ha about that, ultimately they are still among the most powerful platform in China. Um, so, And are you comfortable investing in those businesses given the, you know, when you invest in it, you're not buying the business, you're buying legal obligations that are set up in America. I mean, I, I'm not smart enough to understand what it exactly is, but you're comfortable, obviously, with making that, that leap of faith. Yeah, look, so we have spent a lot of time, you know, interrogating the variable interest entities. Um, you know, there is obviously, um, you know, complex legalities uh, between those, which I don't necessarily need to bore all people with, but... The Judd Family Trust, it was a bit challenging for us to get my head around it. <laughs> it is also a function of, of face here. You know, there's a very large cohort of foreign investors. You know, Baba is listed in the US. Um, and obviously there's a Hong Kong listing and stuff as well now. And I think there is a face-saving issue around um, the investors, you know, getting what they um, expect to get. And China's incentivized to keep getting those US dollars into the Chinese system. It doesn't really play in a China's interest to screw over those investors and preclude future IPOs from happening where they can bring USD into the country. Is that fair? And that's right. I think, you know, the Chinese consumer and certainly the population is very much benefiting from the mm. ongoing investment of, of Starbucks, of LVMH, of, uh, of Nike um, and McDonald's and the list goes and Apple, of course, you know, that's another good example so, look, there is a bit of a symbiosis and the way I was going to answer your question as well is, is really about that symbiosis and that, that sort of political frenemy situation that exists between China and the US. And, I, you know, it's interesting because Trump completely changed, you know, he did, it, he did it a different way. He did it in his own way, throwing grenades. And it was interesting because the CCP have a long-term plan. They don't necessarily need to worry about a president who's only going to be around for four years. They can wait him out. Um, but ultimately the two countries need each other and they mutually benefit from each other's relative competitive advantages. But at the same time, both countries want to succeed and dominate over time. And one of the key ways, particularly if you look at, you know, the long-term plans of the CCP, and certainly it's applicable to the US as well, is technology dominance becomes really important in that, you know, if you're going to be the leader in space exploration and deep sea exploration and artificial intelligence, then you need to be a technology leader. And that takes a significant amount of capital. And I think that's always, in my, from my perspective, in the back of the minds of the governments that want to regulate these businesses because you don't want to weaken them. You actually still want your country to win over the mm. next 10 years and 20 years and 50 years. And, you know, dethroning those companies could actually be shooting yourself in the foot potentially as well. And you saw that with, you know, the Alibaba, there was so much hoo-ha about they're going to be regulated. And I think there's no doubt they will be regulated. For example, they, you know, they've been told they're not allowed to um, make 
merchants only sell through them, you know, and if they ever dare to sell through PDD or JD, we're going to, um, we're going to make life hard for you. They're not allowed to do that. Sure. That's a competitive issue, but the fine that they got was, was mere change really relative to the 70 billion, you know, that they've got sitting there on their balance sheet. And this is a business that yes, is going to be impacted by regulation. You've seen it in the case of Facebook and, and Google in terms of their fines and actions as well, but ultimately it's a business that the CCP wants to succeed. So it's more just, you know, let's work together and we are, you know, to make sure that you do what we want you to do, which is be successful um, and give us as a government also that firepower over time. And that, you know, there is an element of comfort that I take from that as well. Um, you know, in the case of Alipay, you're going to have, you know, very, I think the risk with Alipay, obviously Jack Ma shouldn't have said what he said. Mm. Uh, he should have known better probably, you know, being someone, a, a Chinese national, surely you've been here before, mate, kind of thing. <laughs> but, but he... But it, what it created and what the, the interesting difference for something like an Alipay is that they were doing a lot of financial transactions, you know, on their system. And that was taking that important part of the economy away from the banking system, which is controlled by the CCP. And I think it's inevitable that the CCP would want to regulate that and be in mm. control of that, the movement of money you know, in their country. So I think it's a, again, it's a, it's always a new, as always, it's a nuanced um, decision and, and a nuanced analysis that really needs to, to go into working out which are the vulnerable businesses and then which are the ones that are actually likely to thrive because they've, they've got inherent support. Um, That's brilliant. Well, I won't, I won't take you down the whole China rabbit hole because I reckon I'll need another hour to, uh, to, uh, to ask you everything I'd, I'd want to learn about it. But, um, I think that's a brilliant place to stop. I really appreciate your time, Bahari. I've loved, uh, loved the chat and um, look forward to, to following Magellan's progress. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. It was a great chat as well. Awesome. Thanks, Bahari. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.